Last Sunday we spoke to you from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first three verses, in which the Apostle Paul expressed his desire for the church at Corinth not to be ignorant concerning their fathers, which were under the cloud and passed through the sea, were all baptized uh, into, uh, under, uh, under the cloud, in the cloud and unto Moses, uh, from the standpoint of him being their leader in position of authority, and they were all under him. Then it says they did all eat of that spiritual meat and did all drink of that spiritual drink of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. Now we emphasized last Sunday the spiritual meat and we focused on the manna that God gave them. Now just a word about that before we move into the next verse. God not only gave them manna, but remember God also gave them quails. Remember how God blessed the quails to come because they had requested that they had desired that but if you continue reading that you'll find well that displaying God's power it also displayed a judgment of God because after they ate so their bellies were filled and actually came forth out of their nostrils it said then several thousand of them were slain because they were not appreciative of what God had already done for them and given unto them with the manna now the manna came down from heaven and was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in numerous ways, which we'll not go into again this morning. But it did typify him as the bread of life. Now having said that, I'd like to speak to you about the spiritual drink that they drank of, of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. We go to Exodus chapter 15. In the beginning of Exodus 15, in fact the first 21 verses of this chapter, is a song that... Moses and them wrote after their unbelievable, incredible, miraculous deliverance out of the land of Egypt. They were delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh who hated them and out of the hand of the Egyptian army that pursued after them. And God miraculously opened up the Red Sea when the entirety of this nation crossed dry shod to the other side. And then they witnessed these two great walls of water coming back down and drowning the Egyptians and their horses and their chariots that tried to follow them. And this caused them to break out into a song of praise. Very appropriate, I'd say. We praise God for what he indeed has done for us. So after they got through praising God, and you read the first 21 verses of this chapter, you're going to find then that they went three days into the wilderness. Going three days into the wilderness, it came to a point where it says, and there was no water. Remember that phrase. We'll see it at least three times. And there was no water. Now, if you go back and read the last verse of Exodus 13, you'll find that God gave a supernatural cloud, pillar of a cloud, to lead and to guide them and to cover them. The cloud covered them in the daytime to shield them from the heat and guided them everywhere God wanted them to go. So God has guided them these three days into the wilderness. Remember also that God had told Moses when he commissioned him to go back to Egypt and bring his people out of there, he says, when you bring my people out, you will come to the base of this mountain, which is Mount Sinai, and worship me. Remember that. So after three days in the wilderness with no water, which I'll have to admit was very, very difficult, one day in the wilderness without water would be tolerable. Two days without water in the wilderness would be difficult. But three days in the wilderness without water would be almost unbearable. So that, this is the condition. 
but the Lord is testing them. Now, I want you to know that there's a difference between being tested and being tempted. God tests his people, and Satan tempts God's people. God tests God's people to bring out the best in them so they can grow and they can develop and mature. But the devil tempts God's people to bring out the worst of them to show their spiritual immaturity. So there's a difference between being tested and being tempted. Now, they are three days without any water. They're right where God wanted them to be. God knew there'd be no water after three days. Now, God knew their hearts, but they didn't know their hearts. But trials and tribulations bring oftentimes out of us, out of our heart, you know, things that should teach us some lessons. So after three days in the wilderness, there is no water. And then the Lord directs them to a place called Marah. Now the word Marah means bitter. And we see this in the book of Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, we find where Ruth is a Moabitist and in the land of Moab. But Naomi had left the land of Bethlehem, Judah, with her husband because of a famine. And the word or the name Bethlehem Judah means the house of bread. They left the very house of bread because of some difficulties. They made their lot much worse. They went to the land of Moab. The word Moab literally means that which is barren and unfruitful. And there we find where her two uh, sons married two daughters, Ruth and Orpah. And then all three men die. Naomi's husband dies. The husband of Ruth dies. The husband of the other woman dies. And then Naomi hears that God has blessed his people back in the land of Bethlehem, Judah, with bread, and she has a desire to return. And when she does, and the people saw her, she says, Call me not Naomi, just call me Mara, which means bitterness, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. So this word means bitter. Some of life's experiences can be bitter, Right? If you live long enough in this life, you're going to have some experiences that can be bitter. But the Lord can make them sweet. She leads in this place called Mara, and there is water there, but the water is bitter. Now, this bitter water is undrinkable, so it's no better really than having no water at this point. So they murmur against Moses and Aaron. This is the first time the word murmur is used in the Bible, but not the last. 37 times in the Bible, the word murmur, murmuring, or murmured is used. And Israel specialized in it. They were experts at it. Here's the first time that it's used in the scripture. Now, I want you to understand when things are difficult, murmuring helps nothing. Murmuring and complaining will not improve your lot. Murmuring and complaining will not change anything whatsoever, except your attitude, even for the worse. That's what it'll do. And going back, they murmured against Moses and spoke about going back. Well, when you run from your problems, you can't run from yourself. And there's an old saying, I say it from time to time here, the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. And you have to take that heart with you. It doesn't matter where you go. Changing location doesn't make any difference, generally speaking, anyway. I hear people from time to time say, well, I need a fresh start. I need a new start. I, I, I think I'll, I'll move to a new location. The problem with that, you've got to take yourself with you. And yourself has been the main problem, most likely, all along. So you haven't changed anything. So when they did this, Moses did. The third option is the best option. 
Moses did what I need to do, what you need to do. Moses cried to the Lord. Moses prayed to the Lord. And the Lord responded and the Lord heard his prayer. And he told Moses, he says, there's a tree. I want you to cut this tree down and put it into the water. And the waters will be made sweet. Now, where was that tree? I don't know if the tree was there all along or not. But anyway, Moses looked and he, God, the Bible says God showed him the tree. God showed him the tree. And then he told him what to do with the tree. Now, if you go to the book of Genesis, you'll find there was a time when Hagar was despised of Sarah, even though she was set aside by Sarah for Abraham, because at the time Sarah had no child. And Abraham had a child by Hagar called Ishmael. But later on, the tension was so great between Sarah and Hagar that Sarah wanted Abraham to put her out. And so Abraham did, but he didn't send her out without something to eat and a bottle of water. And he sent her out into the wilderness. She went out into the wilderness, and the Bible says that the bottle was spent, which means she drank all the water that was in the bottle. Now, you know, you can go longer without food than you can water. You can go quite a long time without food, but you can't go a whole lot or a real long time without water. Water is a great necessity. So she took and she put the child she had at this time, Ishmael, under a bush, thinking, you know, done the best she could for the child. And then the Lord had mercy. And the Lord sent an angel and showed her a well of water. Now, the well of water was close by. Why didn't she know about the location of the well of water? Why hadn't she seen this well of water? Because God can just miraculously bring something into existence that prior to that did not exist. So he showed her a well of water and then told her that he would bless that child for Abraham's sake and he'd be the father of many nations. Even though he was Ishmael, God did that for the sake of Abraham. There's a time in the days of Elisha, that the enemy, the nation of Syria, had sent a great multitude of soldiers to capture him. And he had a servant. And their servant saw all the soldiers in the, in the army and was greatly afraid. And he came to Elisha and he presented his case to Elisha. And Elisha prayed for him that the Lord might open his eyes. And the Lord did. And when Elisha's servant looked another time, he saw another army. But this army was God's army from heaven of soldiers or chariots, horses and chariots of fire. The enemy had horses and chariots, but God's army was horses and chariots of fire, which made them superior. God showed him that. He opened his eyes and showed him that. Remember the case in Genesis 22 when Abraham is told of God to take his son, his only son Isaac? and take him up to a, a mountain that he would show him and offer him as his only begotten son on that mountain. He was a miraculous son. He'd been born of Sarah when she was 90, and his father, you know, Abraham, had been 100. Now, several years down the road, this miraculous child, God tells Abraham, take this miraculous child, his only begotten son. Now, he, was, he had Ishmael, but God did not regard Ishmael as his only begotten son because Ish, Isaac was the son of promise to take him on that mountain and offer him. He would show him where to offer him. Abraham complied. Abraham, by faith, obeyed God. 
knowing that God had made a promise to him that through him and his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How is that going to be if he slays his son? But somehow, some way, God will keep his word and God will keep his promise. So he takes it on top of that mountain. He binds Isaac upon the altar. And as he pulls back his hand, I would call this the 11th hour, as he pulls back his hand to slay his only begotten son, we find a voice saying, Abraham, Abraham, stay thy hand. And Abraham turned around and looked and caught in the thicket was a ram by his horns in the thicket. Now I want you to notice in these illustrations I've given you that God supplied exactly what they needed at the time. What did, what did Hagar need for her and her child at the time she was in the wilderness? She needed water. So what did God supply? He supplied a well of water, right? Remember Philippians 4.19, God is able to supply all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. She needed a well of water, he gave her a well of water. What did Elisha's servant need? He needed some courage. He needed some evidence that God was not going to allow the enemy to capture them, so God showed him his army of chariots and horses of fire, right? So what did Abraham need? Abraham needed a sacrifice to take the place of his son. He's about to slay his son on that altar. What does he need? He needs a sacrifice, so what does God do? He provides a sacrifice. A ram caught in the thicket by its horns is going to be taken by Abraham. He's going to release Isaac. The ram's going to be put on the altar in the place of Isaac. Isaac goes free. That's a picture of us, of Jesus taking our place on Calvary, and we go free, but Jesus dies. A ram died in the place of Isaac, and Abraham and Isaac went back down the mountain just like they went up. God always supplies us with what we exactly need. With what we exactly need. Has everybody give, ever given you a present and you opened it up and you were thankful and after they left it, why did they give me that? I don't need that. <laughs> I don't need that. God does better than that, doesn't he? God gives us, he knows what our needs are. He gives us exactly what we stand in need of. And it's never, never anything different. So what do the people need here? They need water they can drink, right? So God tells him, shows him this tree. He says, you cut the tree down, and the tree, you put it into the waters, and the waters that are too bitter to drink will be made sweet. Now, I don't want to over-typify anything. That's real easy to do. You know, there's the old saying to somebody, a preacher talking about a rabbit in the Old Testament, two ears, and one represents the law, and one represents grace. <laughs> That's going just a little bit too far, Okay. <laughs> So we never want to be guilty of that. But I read of a tree that's made a lot of my experiences that were bitter, made them sweet. I read of a tree that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2.22. A tree where it says, And the Lord Jesus Christ bare in his own body on the tree of the cross our sins. And we being dead to sin, living in the righteous, and by his stripes we are healed. I think about that tree every once in a while, don't you? He by his own self, by our sins, in his own body on the tree of the cross. And so when I'm going through some times of trials and tribulations or discouraged or whatever, I think about my Lord hanging upon that tree. That tree, that cross that bore him up where he was suspended between heaven and earth. And he made an offering, not to me, not to the world, he made an offering to God the Father. And the Father received and accepted the offering because it was one of total perfection. 
And therefore, the Lord's people have been made free in Jesus Christ. I think of that tree. I think about a tree over here in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. You start reading the second chapter. You know, this is where he says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. His left hand was under my head. His right hand doth embrace me. He says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And he says, I sat down under the apple tree, the shadow of the apple tree, among all the trees of the wood. So is the apple tree. The apple tree was the king, so to speak, like the rose is the king of the roses. I'm the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. As the apple trees among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the daughters and the sons. I sat down under his tree with great, under the shadow of his tree, with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now that's the Lord Jesus Christ is under consideration here. The fruit of Christ is sweet to the taste of God's people. You ever think about that tree? <laughs> this wonderful tree? In Psalms 1, it starts off by saying, Blessed is man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. There's a lot of ungodly counsel out here in the world. But blessed is man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor seeth the seed of the scornful, but his delights in the law of God. And in death he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose fruit shall you know, bring forth its fruit, and its leaves shall not wither. A picture of fruitfulness is it not. Think about that tree every once in a while. The Lord uses trees. So he cuts down this tree. The tree is put into the waters, and the waters are made sweet. Now, God could have sweetened those waters without a tree being cut and put in there, could he not? And there's a little lesson in that. There are those in the world, always have been, and yes, still are, and probably will be, who try to tell you that God is a miraculous uh, healer and can heal you, and for you to go to doctors and physicians and use medication is a lack of faith on your part. That's not true. God could have healed those waters without Moses cutting the tree down and placed into the waters. In Isaiah chapter 38, there's a man named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah has been revealed unto him that he has a short time left in this world. And Hezekiah turns his back to the wall and he prays to God because God told him to get his house in order. And he prays to God and God hears his prayer. And Isaiah goes to him, bringing the message of God. I've heard their prayers. I've seen their tears. And thee I'll add 15 years. Here's a situation where a man's life was extended 15 years by the mercy and grace of God. But what did God tell Isaiah to do? He says, you take a lump of figs and you make a plaster. And you put it over the, the, the boil and everything that Hezekiah had. Did God need him to do that to heal Hezekiah? No, he didn't do that. need that. And what point I'm trying to show you, sometimes God uses means. He can heal directly or indirectly. Whenever I'm facing something, I need an earthly physician, I try to go to my heavenly physician first. And then when I go to my heavenly physician and talk to him and ask him to help me, then I want the very best earthly physician I can find. How many times have you talked to people and they got a physician about to do surgery and you know what they'll tell you? They say he's the best there is. Well, everybody can't be the best there is, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but if, if they tell you that makes you feel good, well, good. <laughs> and I do want the best there is. When I had my knees replaced 11, 12 years ago, whatever it was, Dr. Stein, I think his name was, 
I remember laying there in the bed just before I passed out. And there came that, you know, male nurse, whatever, picked up the clipboard at the base of the bed and looked at it and said, oh, Dr. Sutton. He said, oh, you got the king. <laughs> that sounded good. That sounded good. Okay. <laughs> but I went to my heavenly physician, and then I had confidence in my earthly physician, and I did want to have the very best there was, and he did have that reputation. What did Paul tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 5, 4 rather? He says, Timothy, drink a little wine for thine often infirmities and for thy stomach's sake. Now, you remember the Apostle Paul had apostolic powers. The Apostle Paul healed miraculously several individuals. But toward the end of Paul's ministry, he did not do that. And he tells Timothy, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake, thine often infirmities, which tells me that Timothy was a kind of a sickly individual, sickly person. And he had problems. And Paul says, you drink a little wine. I emphasize little, underline little. A little wine, not a great deal of wine, not an abundance of wine, but a little wine. Why? For thy stomach's sake and then often infirmities. God can heal directly. God can heal indirectly. God expects us to use, do the best we can with the blessings he's given unto us. And so it's quite all right for you to go to a physician to try to get some help concerning your health. God didn't need Moses to cut that tree down. Moses did it in obedience to God, and sure enough, the waters were made sweet. Now, just before that, they make this statement. I want you to think about this. Just before that happened, they said, what shall we drink? They first find no water, then they find bitter water, and they say, what shall we drink? So that's the question I'll ask myself today from a spiritual perspective. What shall I drink today? Is there anything in the world outside God's written word, his gospel, my friends, and his true church here in this world that will satisfy my thirst? What shall I drink? Because a lot of God's people are drinking from the wrong fountains, I can tell you that. A lot of God's people are drinking from the wrong pools, the wrong fountains, the wrong streams. They're not getting the kind of water that's necessary for spiritual nourishment and strength. Remember what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, Bless those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, the hunger and the thirst is not for anything, but it is for righteousness. And the Lord gave this positive response, Bless those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, what? For they shall be filled. That's the promise of God. So what are you hungering for today? What are you thirsty? Are you hungering and thirsting for truth? Are you hungering and thirsting for entertainment? You know, are you hungering and thirst uh, for the things that to satisfy the natural man, one thing and another? What satisfies the natural man will never satisfy the spiritual man. This is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that which is spiritual. So they move on their journey. And then we come to Exodus chapter 17. So we're still not far down the road. Now, I want you to take a look at, at these passages and look at the attitude, once again, of the children of Israel. When they murmured, usually they responded like this. Why have you brought us out here in the wilderness? They seem to forget Numbers chapter 13, where they sent 12 spies in the land of Canaan. And 10 came back and says, we can't take the land. Two says, we can. They listen to the 10 instead of the two. So they're in the wilderness as a part of God's judgment. They're going to spend 40 years in the, in the wilderness, but God's still going to be merciful and gracious to them. But in their journey in the wilderness, they say, why have you brought us out here in the wilderness to die here in the wilderness? 
We remember when we were down in the land of Egypt. We remember the melons and the, and the onions and, and the fish, etc., etc. And I don't have any doubt that the Egyptians fed the Israelites very well when they were down there because they used those Israelites for hard, hard work and labor. And they knew we need these Israelites to be strong in body to get the work done. So I don't have any doubt whatsoever that they fed them well. But I also have no doubts either that they were hard and cruel and harsh taskmasters. They seem to forget that. When you read the Psalms, pay particular attention to Psalms 78, Psalms 105, 106, and 107. Here are four Psalms that go into detail about the things I'm speaking about here this morning. Why would God repeat these things so often times in the Scriptures, especially over here in the Psalms? Must be something in it for us. Remember Romans 15, 4, the things written the four times written for our learning, that we through patience come for the scriptures, might have hope. It says some things they forgot. Psalm 78 is about not, N-O-T. They remembered not. They believed not. They kept not. And their heart was not right with God. All those knots are in Psalms 78. Believe not, remember not, kept not, heart not right with God. That's why they went through so many of these things, why they murmured, why they complained. You'll also find in Psalms 106 where it says, They forgot God's wondrous works. Let's notice what they remembered and what they forgot. They remembered the leeks and the melons and the onions and all those things and the fish. They remembered that, but they forgot God's wondrous works. God provided ten miraculous signs in the land of Egypt and bringing his children out of there. And they forgot all that. They forgot his wondrous works and remembered not the multitude of his mercies. What an indictment that is. To forget the wondrous works of God and remember not the multitude of his mercies. Now, I can be just like that. That's why it's written for my learning, not to be like that. I don't need to forget God's multitude of his mercies in my life. I don't need to forget God's wondrous works in my life. And God has worked great wonders in my life. I've got to be careful not to forget that. But that's a tendency in human nature, is it not? That's a frailty of human nature to forget the things we need to remember. Remember the things we ought to forget. There are times I'm trying to meditate on the Word of God and some silly country song comes into my mind and I can't get it out. I mean, I just can't get it out. <laughs> I don't know why, but I can't get it out. You ever had a problem like that? <laughs> something foolish, something silly, one thing or another gets in your head and you just, you just can't get it out. And it's just blocking good, fruitful thoughts and meditations you could be having in the Word of God. So here's what they remembered. Here's what they forgot. And so we come to Exodus chapter 17. And guess how this chapter opens up? And there was no water. <laughs> and there was no water. And they murmured against God. And God tells Moses, he says, you take the rod. Remember, Moses had a rod as a shepherd, and God told him to take that rod with him as a shepherd when he was 80 years old, sent him back to the land of Egypt. He says, you bring the rod back with you. And when you look at those 10 miraculous things that God did in the land of Egypt, the rod was used about a half a dozen times. 
That rod's a picture of God's judgment. It was in the hand of Moses. It was the hand of Moses when he divided the Red Sea. He told Moses, stretch forth thy hand and thy rod across the sea. And he did, and the sea parted. But there was one in particular in which God told Moses to strike the river, the Nile River, and he turned the water of the Nile River into blood. It became undrinkable. And the magicians tried to reverse it. They couldn't do it. And then the Egyptians dug all around that river trying to find some water. God would not allow them to be successful. He meant for that water to be blood, and it stayed blood. And the fish died in that water. And the smell of death arose out of that water. It was totally unusable for anything. No matter how, try, how, matter how hard they tried to find other water, God did not allow them to be successful. You work against the will of God. It's like Paul there in his experience. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You just start trying to work against God, and you're going to find yourself failing miserably. God's not going to allow you to outdo him. You know that by now, don't you? <laughs> if you don't, you will. <laughs> if you don't, you will. So he tells Moses, take that rod. He says, you, they're now in Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. He says, now... I'm going to stand on the rock, rock, this rock in front of you. He said, I want you to smite the rock with this rod and water will come out of this rock and will supply the needs, the thirst of all the people and all the animals. We're talking about a million plus people now in the wilderness and enough water is going to come out of this rock that God is standing on to supply all their needs. Now, I want you to get in the picture. Here's a rock. God stands on the rock. Here's Moses. He's got the rod. Now, remember, all through Moses' life, he's a picture of what? Of intercession. He's a picture of intercession. He stood between God and Israel. Just like already when he pleaded to God over there in Exodus 15, when there, the water was bitter, he pleaded on Israel's behalf, and God told him what to do about cutting down the tree. Now, it points us to a greater intercessor, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 34. The question is asked, who, who, uh, uh, who can condemn God's people? He says, God, that uh, Jesus Christ that uh, died for our sins, arose from the dead, and is on the right hand of God, making intercession for his children. Thank God we have an intercessor in the Lord Jesus Christ who's a greater intercessor than Moses was. We'll see that a little bit later on. In particular, we have a wonderful intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes our situation, our case, and presents them to the Father. Now, I want you to see this. This is a picture of the governmental dealings of God. Here's the rock. Now, in the Old Testament, in particular the Old Testament, the rock was a picture of God himself. You remember Deuteronomy 32.4? He is the rock. And when you're talking about the God being the rock, it's always spelled with a capital R. He's the rock. His work is perfect. A God of truth without iniquity. Just and right is he. That's how Moses identified the God of Israel as the rock, R-O-C-K. But later on in that chapter, you look at verse 15, verse 18, verse 30 in this chapter. And you're going to find where he says they lightly esteem the rock of their salvation. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> It'd be even more amazing if I didn't consider myself. When I consider myself, it's not quite as amazing as it might seem to be. They lightly esteem the rock of their salvation. They 
were forgetful of the rock of their salvation. And he says, how can one chase a thousand and two ten thousand? God promised them in their obedience unto him that one person could chase a thousand people and two people could chase ten thousand people. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He says, the reason you can do that is because Israel's rock, capital R, has sold them, he says, and the enemy is the little rock, little R-O-C-K. Then later on he says, let their God, R-O-C-K, deliver them. There's a contrast between the, the rock and the little rock. Okay? So he is the rock. Isaiah 32, 1 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I just love to quote it every now and then. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Rivers of water in a dry place. They're in the wilderness. It's a dry place, a barren place. It's not a place you'd try to build a house, not a place you'd want to settle down in. In fact, they began to complain over there in Exodus chapter 17 and said, this is not a place to sow seed. This is not a place for pomegranates and vines and figs. and things. You're right, it was not. Why were they in there? Because of, their, of God's judgment and their disobedience. They could have been in the land of Canaan, which was a great land for all those things. So you stand here. I'm going to stand on this rock before you, Moses. You smite this rock, and water will flow out. Now you read over there in Psalms 105, 106, and the Bible says the water gushed out and ran like rivers throughout all the land. Can you imagine how much water is coming out of this rock? You have to imagine it, I suppose. We're talking about enough water to supply, satisfy a million-plus people, enough water to take care of the people and their beasts and their cattle and one thing and another. And God supplied their needs totally and completely. What a picture of our gracious Lord, our gracious God. What was the position of the people when all this took place? Were they humble? Were they repentant? Were, were they cast down? No, they were standing up in pride. They were disobedient. They were rebellious against God. So what does that tell me? It tells me how gracious God is, how merciful God is to provide for a people who were stiff-necked, rebellious, and walking in defiance of God. God, have mercy on our nation today. Why do you think we still exist? Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations, as the Lord's mercy is that we're not consumed. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen and amen to that. May God continue to be merciful upon our people in this nation who've turned their backs upon God. But anyway, we get back to these people. <laughs> but these people are like people today. They're no different. got the same nature. And so this is the attitude of the people. But here's God's mercy and God's grace. Oh, how, how, how wonderful God is. How good he is. How great he is. How powerful he is. But how merciful and how gracious that he is. So Moses smote the rock, and sure enough, the water just flowed, and the water gushed out. See, they drank of that spiritual rock. They drank that spiritual drink of that spiritual rock which followed them. When I think about a rock, I think about its stability. You know, 
That's why when you build a house, you build a building of any kind, you want to make sure it's on a solid foundation, right? I can guarantee you this. This building is on a solid foundation. There's a lot of rock underneath this building right here. <laughs> a lot of rock. I, I, up here, I saw it. Thankfully, the Lord blessed us not to have to uh, get too much out of it until we got to that last third, and then they were here for a long time, drilling, drilling, getting that rock out of here. How the Lord teaches lesson, this lesson to his children in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice how it ends. He said, I liken that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them unto a wise man, who built his house upon a rock. And when the rains came and the winds blew, he says, the rock stood steadfast. I mean, the, the house stood firm upon the rock because they had a solid rock foundation. But I liken that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them not to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains came and the winds blew, the house didn't stand. The house fell apart because they were on a, a bad foundation, you see. Now, what did Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18? Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A little lesson right here that's really important. He made this statement to a man by the name of Peter. Peter just confessed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus told him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That's how you understand it. It's how I understand it, because the Father in heaven has revealed it to us. And he says, upon this rock, he's pointing to himself. He's not pointing to Peter. The word rock there comes worth a word that means bedrock. Bedrock, the kind you build on. Peter's name, Jesus gave him the name of Cephas. You know what Cephas means? It means a stone. There's a lot of difference between a stone and a rock. Jesus is the bedrock. The church was not built on Peter. It was built on the bedrock of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was based upon his per, uh, built upon his person and his work on Calvary. That's what the church, his church is built upon. That's a solid foundation, isn't it? When I study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I find no fault. I find no weakness. I find that which is solid. I find that which is stable. I find that which is perfect. I find that which is righteous. I find that which is holy. I find uh, that to be something that you can trust in, believe in, and, be, and you can build on. But then I look at his death. What did he accomplish in his death? Who did he die for? Why did he die? What was accomplished in his death? That's really important if you understand that. Did he die for everybody in general, nobody in particular? No, he did not. He died for a particular people. That's why we preach particular redemption. He died for his children, for his elect. And for all whom Christ died for and shed his blood for, I can assure you will be in glory. Not one will be missing. <laughs> I don't know why people don't just fall in love with that doctrine. <laughs> why they don't embrace that, fall in love with that, to understand that not one person, my friends, whom Jesus died for, not one person whom Jesus loved, not one person Jesus shed his blood for, will not be in glory. They'll all be there without the loss of one. Jesus did not die on Calvary to make salvation a possibility. Now I want you to hold that, that thought and those, that picture right there. Now a rock is, a, is symbolic of stability. It's also symbolic of durability. 
A rock can withstand the water and the rain and the storms and one thing or another over a course of many, many years and still remain just like it was. Hebrews 13, 8 says, The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, Yesterday, today, and forever. In that wonderful note, we live in such a changing world, we have an unchanging God. Jesus Christ is saying, When? Yesterday, today, and forever. And forever takes care of every tomorrow that will ever be. There's not a tomorrow coming, my friends, that Jesus Christ won't be the same, right? You can look at him in the past and the present and say, well, I see the same Jesus now, the same Jesus then, but I don't know about the future. I can assure you the future is no different than the present and no different than the past. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That word forever takes care of everything. He was smitten. What was Jesus Christ when he was here? Look at Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. It says, The Lord esteemed him stricken and smitten for our sakes by the hand of God. God smote his only son for our behalf. But let's come over here to Numbers chapter 20, 40 years down the road. 40 years down the road from what I'm speaking about in Exodus 17. They come to a place of wilderness and there's no water. Now you would think after going through the experience of no water, bitter water made sweet, water coming out of a rock, it wouldn't pose no real problem. Do we find them saying, Lord, we know you've taken care of us in the past, but now we're without water again and we come to you depending upon an independent God. Don't you like that? We depend upon an independent God. God doesn't depend upon us. We depend upon Him. You'd have thought for sure they'd have remembered all that, wouldn't you? But no. They chided with Moses just like they did back in Exodus 17. They murmured against Moses and Aaron just like they did back in chapter 17. So you think, well, I, God won't keep putting up with this kind of stuff. God ain't going to put up with this kind of unthankfulness. God's not going to put up with this kind of unbelief. But he did. By his mercy, he says, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock this time. Now, I want you to notice the difference between these two rock experiences here as we begin to bring this toward conclusion. In Acts chapter 17, when Moses smote the rock, the whole assembly of Israel was not there, just the elders. Just the elders. There was Moses. There was Aaron. Well, actually, Aaron is not mentioned here. Excuse me. There's Moses. And you got the elders. And you got the rock. And you got God standing upon the rock in front of Moses. That's a picture of his government. That's a picture of his crucifixion, the rock being smitten. But over here in Numbers chapter 20, we find Aaron brought into the picture. And Aaron's rod is brought into the picture. What was Aaron? Aaron was a priest. We got the priestly rod of Aaron under consideration here. It's, God didn't say, I'll stand upon the rock in this place here. The word for rock in Numbers 20 is different than the word rock in Exodus chapter 17. The word for rock in Numbers chapter 20 means a rock that is lifted up and elevated, a picture of his exaltation. When Christ was crucified, taken off the cross, put into a barred tomb, he was there three days and three nights, resurrected, spent 40 days upon the face of this earth, and then he lived, was lifted up and left this world and went right back to heaven where he came from. Where is he at right now? He's on the right hand of God, making intercession for the saints of God. He's never to be smitten again is the point. 
Now he's to be spoken to. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad God doesn't have, Christ doesn't have to be smitten again? Aren't you glad that now you can just speak to him and, and he hears your cry? The ears of the Lord are over the right, and his eyes, his eyes see and his ears open to the cries of the righteous. We take our case to the Lord Jesus Christ. We speak to him as exalted, victorious Savior. We believe in a victorious Christ, a resurrected Christ, an ascended Christ, an interceding Christ, and one day a returning Christ. That's our belief about all these matters. But Moses had about all he could take. <laughs> he says unto the people, Must we fetch water out of this rock for ye rebels? They were rebels, but they were God's rebels. He didn't get water out of the rock the first time. And he's not going to get water out of the rock the second time, but water will flow abundantly. Because God was merciful, he's going to take care of the needs of his people one more time. And the waters flowed out and the people drank. These stiff-necked, rebellious, obstinate people now have their thirst taken care of and satisfied. What about Moses and Aaron? God speaks to him and says, because you failed to sanctify me in the sight of the people, you will not go in to the land of Canaan. I can remember reading that over 40 years ago. I remember reading that 50 years ago. And I remember what I thought. Lord, let him go in. <laughs> He's had a hard time. He's had to deal with this people who been disobedient, forgot not, remembered not, kept not, heart was not right with thee. That's the kind of people he had to deal with. Let him go in. God didn't let him go in until the mountain of transfiguration. On the mountain of transfiguration, who appears with Jesus on that mountain? Moses does. And Elijah does. See, this is a picture of him, his exaltation. The first rock experience is that of his crucifixion. The second is that of his exaltation. They drank of that spiritual water, that spiritual drink of that spiritual rock that followed them. Now, I missed one little thing back over here. Of course, I probably missed more than one little thing, but here's one little thing I missed. I'll put it that way. You go back over here to the last part of Exodus chapter 15 after the moral experience, and they, they find an Elam experience. This is how God balances things out. If we only had trials all the time, we'd get so discouraged, we'd never get out of the valley of despondency, would we? If we just rode upon the mountaintops all the time and everything was rosy and everything went great, we'd be the most prideful and unthankful people you could think of. So God just balances the things out. Here's the Mar experience. Take a look at the Elam experience. They come to a place called Elam, and you know what they find? They find 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees right out there in the wilderness. How in the world did that happen? An oasis. How many tribes is there in Israel? Twelve. How many wells of water was it? Twelve. Every tribe got their own, <laughs> got their own well. You know, I, remember, I, I know people who, who raised a family of a half a dozen people, one bathroom. Today, everybody's got to have their own bathroom. When Karen and I was living in Florida and Sarah was born, made our fourth child. We had two bathrooms, but they was always coming in our bathroom. 
So we built on another bedroom with our bathroom, only to find out it was still their bathroom. Didn't solve anything. <laughs> but I'm telling you, each tribe had a well of water right here and 12 palm trees to relax under, be refreshed by. After they drank the water, they could sit under the palm trees. In the New Testament, there were 12 apostles, weren't they? And there were 70 who went out two by two, right? 12 and 70 in both dispensations, Old Testament, New Testament. Today, I like to think about Isaiah 12, 2 and 3. Rise as the Lord is our strength and our salvation and our song, and with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. God's given us 66 wells to draw water out of, and they're never bitter. God not only gives us our Mar experiences, He gives us our Elam experiences. And may we think about this in closing, Isaiah 55, 1. He says, Ho, every one of you that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Without, wine, and obtain, and, and without money and without price. Here you drink of the waters God gives you. It cannot be bought with silver and gold. It cannot be bought. You cannot buy God's blessings. But you will not get them outside of obedience either. You've got to obey the word of God. Ho, every one that thirsteth. No, this is not to everybody. Just to those that thirst. If a person thirsts, it shows they have life. A dead man doesn't have any thirst. And a, dead, a person dead in trespass and sin is not going to thirst for spiritual things. So everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Oh, how wonderful it is to come to the house of God and have our spiritual souls and our spiritual hearts filled with the living water that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. They drink of that spiritual drink, that spiritual drink of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? That was their question, Psalm 78. God proved that he could.